Welcome to the Windswept and Interesting podcast, where people who make the outdoors great come to be heard. I'm Richard Baines, and in today's podcast, we're talking to a woman who rescues deer, but knows they have to be shot. A committed conservationist who knows how farmers fear rewilding, and a woman who keeps a fecund, one-eyed lady hedgehog. If you enjoyed this chat, by the way, you can help by subscribing or following on your podcast platform. And if you want to feedback to me on not Twitter, my handle is at Scott Nature Cool. So Polly Puller, the author, journalist and conservationist, is my subject today. And I came to her Perthshire spread to see what she gets up to and find out what she thinks. Do farmers get a raw deal? Should they get compensation for putting up with nature? And is rescuing tiny specks of wildlife, such as baby squirrels, really worthwhile? Or is it just a sentimental endeavour? First of all, Polly showed me some of her more unusual livestock. I'm very lucky to live in this really super spot here um, in Highland Perthshire. Right now you're looking at my two deer. So I have Ruby, who's about 14 years old now, and Cloudy, who is four. And these two hinds are permanent fixtures here. Uh, Ruby came to me because she was covered in sheep ticks. She was just two weeks old. And the vet was really keen to see if we could beat the ticks. It was for interest to see whether he could work with beating ticks with um, animals that were m more valuable than deer. Obviously things like uh, horses or um, good cattle and sheep. And um, we had to nurse her through it all. She had over 300 sheep ticks on her, all bloated. It was absolutely awful. And she was paralysed. So we never knew if she would survive or not. But survive she has. And she's pretty much 100% normal. She's a real character. And she's 14 years old. Yeah, she's 14. But I had a friend who, have a friend, who had a hind that was 28 when she died. So in captivity, they will live a long time when they're being fed and looked after. So it's incredible, really. Obviously, in the wild, teeth problems and bad weather and that sort of thing would probably see for them and worm burdens as well. But anyway, they're great characters. And Cloudy, the younger one, she was found during lockdown. One night, um, we were sitting in the garden and we heard a hell of a racket. Somebody was roaring at their dog. Um, we don't know who they, it was, a lot of bad language drifting over on a lovely calm summer night. And when I walked up the back the next morning, June the 1st, there was this calf lying in the middle of the track, looking like a charity shop fur coat, buzz of flies all around her, blood on the path, obviously not from the calf, but from the hind, hind nowhere to be seen. They cull all the deer up behind us anyway for the forestry. So, um, being a real sucker for red deer, I uh, brought her home and the rest is history. She's still here and what a character. And they just live a life they live, happy retirement. Yes, they do. They live with the sheep and um, we certainly don't want to put them in calf. We don't want any more deer, you know, that's just <laughs> enough. Uh, they're tremendous pets. Um, but obviously, it's deer are a big issue in so many places. But I've always had a fascination for them and I've learned a huge amount and continue to do so by having them as... Um, family members really they're just incredible they always right. surprise you very strong-willed you have to be a wee bit careful and they can be a bit cheeky with the sheep sometimes so um, they just need careful handling we don't do tidbits because they get completely over the top same with the sheep I just have a few sheep now just because I enjoy them too and having once been a sheep farmer you don't you don't clip them or 
sending for slaughter? Or? No, not now. We did when I first came here, and obviously when I was sheep farming properly, but no, now we just keep them as pets, and they keep these fields nice and tidy, and, um, you know, obviously we don't want them in the woods and things, but uh, I just love sheep. I've always been fascinated by them, particularly native breeds. There's a wee guy there sitting, getting a bit of shade underneath that uh, feeder. Yes, it was unfortunate. They were clipped on uh, Sunday morning and it's done nothing but rain ever since. So I think they've been wishing they had their jumpers on. Because <laughs> Yes, they were far too hot before. So it was always a relief to get them clipped. Right, let's go and have a look at some more of the place. You probably stay in this bit, but I'll come to the door here. So this is um, a red squirrel that I picked up uh, two months ago now. It was just a tiny baby found in a garden at Blair Athol. Uh, a retired gamekeeper and his wife were looking out in the garden and they saw this female squirrel carrying babies across the lawn and she dropped one of them and he was there for two or three hours and she didn't come back for him. And it was a very cold day and the little tiny baby was crying his eyes out, making a heck of a racket. Very high-pitched noise they make when they're distressed. So he was fully furred at that point, but eyes closed and just absolutely tiny. So I went and picked him up. We didn't really have much choice but to hand-rear him. This one is well-travelled. When I got him, I was due to go to Tyree with my son and... Uh, this little thing had adapted well to my hand feeding and was beginning to thrive and I thought if I give him to somebody else to look after whilst I'm away it could be a disaster just because he'd got used to me. So we took him to Tyree with us and he had a night and a bed and breakfast in Oban. I didn't tell the bed and breakfast owner, I decided that uh, some things are best kept quiet in case she made a fuss about fleas which she didn't have anyway. Um, so. He came to Tyree and we fed him every four hours during our stay in Tyree and he didn't see much of the island. But I do wonder, I reckon that's probably the first time there's ever been a squirrel on Tyree. I mean, there's not a tree really much on Tyree for a squirrel. So, um, yes, it's, he's, he's done really well. He's called Alistair. I don't usually name squirrels, but the man I got him from was called Alistair. It's so, uh, so much of a privilege to get close to a red squirrel. It's so unusual to go out there sort of within a foot of him. I know he's incredible but unfortunately you know, if you go in I'm slightly worried that he will use you and your microphone as a trampoline. He certainly uses me as one. He's just so lovely. So yeah, you're going to go beautiful. in there now? Yeah, I'll go in. And hopefully and he won't jump on me while he's... Well he just may. I can't guarantee <laughs> anything. Polly is now doing her trick of having the, the squirrel run all over her body and crawl around her and... <laughs> He, he's a bit of a nipper now. He does nip a little bit, just gets overexcited. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, he's, he's a little character. They all are. It's always mm. hard letting them go because it's tough out there. Um, you hope they'll do well. But the main, main thing is they must learn to open the nut box feeders. And then if he goes to Clooney, which is a fabulous place for red squirrels, uh, the Mattingleys, Wendy and John Mattingley, feed the squirrels all the time. It's very important with a hand-reared animal to make sure there's a backup of food till they get established. And it's just been up your coat? Yes, and um, he's when I've had other wee squirrels <laughs> like this, they've been up people's trouser legs as well. Right, keep him well away from me. Person, yes. Um, <laughs> well, yes, you mustn't forget that uh, squirrels are quite partial to nuts. <laughs> so, and they do bite. I mean, I find it so astonishing now, Richard, looking at this wee thing, thinking that 
we used to persecute red squirrels. I mean, that's what's so extraordinary. Thousands of squirrels were killed due to the perceived threat they posed to trees. I mean, you can't imagine it now that we all love red squirrels. I reckon the red squirrel is probably the only animal that you don't hear anything negative about. And we had to we had to boost their numbers in Scotland by bringing them in from yes, Scandinavia. Yeah, which is extraordinary. Some landowners in the end of the 1700s brought them in, um, when others were um, giving a premium to people for culling them. And on one particular estate, they cut off, cut, caught them, cut off their tails. <laughs> Whoops! What are you doing? <laughs> and then. Um, uh, they would keep the tails, release the squirrel, because they believed that they would grow another tail. So they'd get paid twice. Just extraordinary. I mean, you do wonder... And how would a squirrel cope without a tail? Well, it's it like a balance? It wouldn't. It's everything. You know, it's a parasol, it's an umbrella, it's a blanket, it's it's everything. They'd just get signals. predated straight yeah. away, yeah, wouldn't they? Yeah, they yeah. use it as a signal when they're yeah. angry or yeah. when they're pleased or... Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really key thing. And for balance, I mean, you see them leaping through the trees here got a good population of red squirrels here so it's a shame I can't release him here but I just I worry also that he might see me in the garden and I want him to disassociate with me altogether I think we'll go and leave you we're getting a little bit overexcited that's it Whoops. so when you're handling wild squirrels obviously you can get hold of them and they just go into a complete um, shock they, they they get so stressed so you know handling the young ones is very very straightforward but handling adult squirrels that um, can come out now. That's it, you have to take your moment, that's it. So I'm a bit of a paradox, I suppose. There I am with two pet deer, um, but I do totally understand. I mean, I was brought up uh, in a on a f in Ardna where we culled a lot of deer. You had to, um, and this is where it's all going wrong. But it's um, one thing I would really advocate is that culling deer is fine, but it has to be done properly. And, you know, I don't like this mass slaughter that goes on at night. I don't like some of the things that you hear awful reports about some slaughtered deer deserve our utmost respect. I absolutely love them. Um, don't have a problem with culling them, but um, obviously not the two in our field. <laughs> now in here we've got another of your Yes, so guests. in here we have, I've been taking in hedgehogs now for about 40 years. And this hedgehog was found, I was driving through Dunblane um, on the dual carriageway uh, in June five years ago and I saw this hedgehog crossing the main dual carriageway in the middle of the day on a very hot day. Obviously something wasn't right so I nearly caused an accident and uh, stopped the car flashing lights and leapt out and got the hedgehog in the back of the car. She turned out to be um, have a bit of a problem in that she just wouldn't roll up. She was very, very painfully thin and had one of her eyes was uh, falling out. So she had the eyeball was actually just sort of near the socket. And the vet said, just leave it and it'll atrophy and fall off and she'll be fine. So the eye isn't the reason why I didn't release her. The reason I didn't release her is because she won't roll up. But she's had two litters of babies and uh, she had a very good lockdown and had five babies. Um, she was with a male hedgehog last year, but obviously didn't think much of him because she didn't have babies last year so she's I don't know how old she is but I've had her five years and uh, she's a character she's oh. called Reggie and she's boosting the local hedgehog population. well I don't release hedgehogs around here it's just not great habitat for them so I have to find some of her young went to Agus Field Centre so we took them up there and um, they were doing a habitat restoration project and trying to encourage hedgehogs again 
It's a real problem. Hedgehogs are not doing well and there are so many reasons for it, but mostly the keys in the name, loss of hedgerows really. Yes. Do I need to shut this no, gate? No, that's fine. That's okay. Not a fast mover. No, that's a flat thing to go anyway. Is she in here? She's just yeah. two beds. Are we okay to disturb her during the day? Oh, she's just here. okay. There we are. Can I see you? Can I see you? Just a quick visit. I'm not. I'm not. Oh, she's much bigger than I thought. I've really not encountered a hedgehog. But you see, she's not a live one. She's not um, curling up. I think she probably is quite large, just simply because she has a lot of food. Yeah. And you can see she hasn't got an eye on this side. Aww. But she's such a sweet hedgehog. I have to keep trimming her claws; they get very long, obviously, because she's not out and about as much. Although she's in here in the summer, and then she comes inside in the winter into one of the sheds. And last winter she slept the entire winter, whereas the one before she didn't at all, so... And does she mop up your garden slugs? <laughs> no, not really. She's not very keen on slugs. Oh, I thought that was one of their favourites. Yeah, she's fussy. <laughs> she's Only the best. She doesn't like slugs very much, it's funny. But what do you feed her on? Um, she gets a, a wide mixture. She gets some live mealworms, she gets dog and cat food. She's very partial to a little bit of um, a few vegetables. She gets some, some steamed broccoli. When we're doing broccoli, we maybe do a little bit extra for her. She needs her greens, so she seems to be doing well on it. A bit of I mean, caviar maybe yeah, as well. No, yeah, no, I <laughs> haven't tried that. Um, hedgehogs are sort of omnivorous anyway, so they'll eat a huge varied diet. I mean, obviously eggs and things too. They're another creature that eats eggs, ground nesting birds. So, um, yeah, but she's not very keen on eggs either. We're it never occurred to me before, but what are they related to hedgehogs what what family of animals are they they're pretty much a family on their own i don't think they're i'm trying to remember now you've asked me a question i really don't know the answer to what <laughs> who they i think I mean, i've always thought there are quite a lot of hedgehogs different types of hedgehogs right but they're not um, mustelids they're not no 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 they're a family yeah. on their own yeah they're not part of the big family no no not at all no yeah. i think they're very much on their own and they're fascinating so should we pay more attention to farmers' moans? And how do kids get dolphins inside their heads? Stay listening to find out more. We'll be back in one minute. After a tour of Povy's farm, we've now come into her, her sitting room to escape from the weather a little bit. It's, it's the same old story every time I go anywhere, it rains. But I wanted to ask Polly a couple of questions about the work that you do, Polly, and some of the perhaps more controversial aspects of it. You're a great advocate for restoring nature, but you, you are living in amongst farmers and the agricultural community. There is this sense of conflict around that, isn't there? Yes, there certainly is. And I suppose having grown up in a farming community and been a farmer myself for many years, I always go to a lot of um, trouble to try and see both sides of the story. And I think there always are two sides to the story. And I worry for farmers, certainly the smaller farmers, that they are really pushed a lot of the time um, and they're forced into situations that probably economically they have to go with just simply because otherwise they can't afford to exist. Um, that is a real worry. I also worry a lot about huge commercial farming and the way it's become more of a, an industry rather than a way of life. And I think that's very, very sad. But as I say, I do always try to hear both sides of the story and it worries me enormously that... When it comes to conservation issues, things are very intractable and entrenched and 
nobody is talking to anybody else or shall I say nobody's listening to anybody else and I think when that happens nothing is achieved so I think the most important thing that I would stress is to keep, keep communicating and to try and see why people are feeling threatened or upset I think that's vital. So when you're communicating with with farmers do you get a sense that they're that they're fed up that they're pissed off? Frankly. Yes, I do. I, I think a lot of them, especially in this area, I mean, I haven't actually spoken to anybody particularly recently about the various situations, but in this area, you know, it's... The various situations are beavers, beavers and beavers. And then, of course, coming from Ardnamarkin as well, there was all the issues with sea eagles. And But again, um, yes, farmers are worried, but I think we do have to change our views. We can't be steeped in the Victorian era when it comes to persecuting things I think that's really important to recognize so I mean people are constantly breaking the law and then they wonder why people get pissed off which they do you know um, conservationists get very upset about these things but so do members of the public but again you have to understand that if a slug eats your lettuces you reach for the slug pellets um, it's a really really difficult thing because one thing I really come across in my work all the time is that everybody wants something different from the environment. Everybody wants something different from the countryside. So on the one hand, let's just take, for example, people with dogs and walkers, and they walk through people's ewes and lambs, and they don't seem to understand that even if the dog doesn't chase sheep, the fact of a strange dog in among um, newly lambed ewes can throw the whole thing into mayhem. So, you know, we as... Um, the public have to recognise farmers' problems. We have to recognise that, you know, leaving gates open or rampaging through the middle of uh, cows and calves, you know, you, you, it has to come from both sides. So there are issues to be addressed. We're so lucky to have the right to roam here, but we really have to make sure we behave responsibly. And, you know, some farmers do have a lot of problems with people. We've talked about this before, but... Um, one of the problems that I always come across with um, things like beavers, seagulls, etc., is the fact that the government doesn't pay any compensation for the harms that they do to agricultural interests. I think that's a really valid point, Richard. I think that, that is absolutely paramount. You know, they allow things to be um, reintroduced, which is so wonderful. But then that's where it ends. And then these farmers are really pushed. And in some cases, there are issues. And... I think that's something we need to recognise. I mean, sadly, I sometimes think that nowadays it feels as if nature has to pay rent for its rightful place where it was before. Um, and if that has to be the way things move forward, that's what we should do. Farmers should be compensated for where there are problems. But that seems to be the sticking point, doesn't it? I mean, it just doesn't seem to be happening. It comes down to money. It comes down to money. But, you know, nature is absolutely vital to our well-being in every way. So I think they need to recognise this. And I sadly fear that, you know, they're moving further away from that rather than moving into doing more about it. I think farmers would be a lot happier if they could get decent compensation when there are recognised issues, as understandably there will be. Just going back to the, the lovely uh, rescue animals that you've got here. Um, what It's a difficult question, this, and obviously you do that because it comes from the heart to a certain extent, but 
do you think it do you think it is something that provides an overall benefit to nature or is it just something that you do because they're cuddly oh god goodness well I certainly <laughs> it isn't something I do because they're cuddly I th hope that there's a little benefit I say a little benefit because it's only a drop in the ocean the work I do is only very small but let's take the squirrel for example every squirrel counts so if I can get one back to the wild that is really a positive thing I think there's another issue here is, um, and I'm only just thinking of this as I'm speaking to you, I haven't really thought of it before, but the fact that you're doing that raises awareness to the fact that these animals and birds are incredibly vulnerable. Um, we hold the future of all our wildlife in the palm of our hand, and I keep coming back to that idea, you know, as I'm sitting in my kitchen at two o'clock in the morning, wishing I was asleep, um, but hand feeding a tiny tiny baby squirrel and it's in that palm of my hand and I think you know we hold the power to whether we have successful wildlife um, in all our area, country areas urban areas wherever it happens to be so I think if it's raising awareness that is a little bit to do with it as well but of course it's because I love doing it there is enormous satisfaction with returning something to the wild um, but perhaps I shouldn't overlook the fact that a lot of what I do, there are failures. Things die. Things die unexpectedly. Um, you can be going along really well and think something's doing brilliantly. And then suddenly you go and it's little body stiff in the morning. And it's, it is heartbreaking. And equally, when you release things, sometimes things go wrong. Um, but you have to do the best you can. And that's all I try to do, really. I like to involve children too. If there are children who can come to releases and see the wonderful sight of something returning to the wild, tick tawny owls, that's wonderful that when you see them going back to the wild, it's absolutely brilliant. And here we have tawny owls coming back at night for food that I leave out for them. And these are some of the ones that I've hand reared. I had a look around the grounds. I've, I've had a look around the grounds of, of, of the place before, but today we've had a, a look at, at, at some of the, of the stuff. And it does strike me that it's a place that people can come and learn from. Do, do, do you do that at all? Do you? Um, I don't really, because a lot of the rehab work involves, I don't want animals to get, or birds to get used to visitors and people. And often if they're very stressed as well, you don't want to add to that. And obviously anything that's in captivity is stressed if it's wild. But I'm always very keen if somebody wants to come and see what can be done on a small scale, then that's different and I would love to show In terms them. of the woodland yes, and, and the sheep. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, to yeah. see that um, it all fits together and how important habitat restoration is and how important it is. You know, one of the areas where we haven't really discussed much is that gardeners, I mean, in the drought that we've just been experiencing, we've been driving about and seeing all this grass cut down to... Um, it's, it's almost as if somebody's had a razor and just cut it so close. And of course, it's all brown now. And people don't seem to realise that we do need to be less tidy in our gardens to encourage things. Um, and that message just doesn't always seem to be driven home. Same with roadside verges. Why, when councils are so strapped for cash, are they endlessly chopping roadside verges? I don't. I'm not talking about where there are sight lines because obviously those have to be cut. Junctions, and like Junctions yeah. of course, that's that's common sense. But, you know, there's huge areas where there are really important wildflowers. And these are some of the only places where some of these rare flowers now survive. 
because the fields next to them are, are intensively yeah, farmed. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, and and yeah. wildflowers need impoverished ground. They don't want you know nitrogen rich ground. So. Um, yeah, we need to think about all these things. And so if, if coming here, I can show people what I do and they're inspired, then I feel that's fantastic. That that makes me happy if I just get one person to take away the message and think I'd like to look after nature in a different way. You've done some work in the past in schools and you've been doing that again. And I think that's a really interesting idea that we need to keep the sort of educational side uh, going about conservation. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the most important thing is children are our futures. So the, the most important thing for me is to go and talk to primary school children. They're like little sponges at that age. They're not frightened of things. They're not worried about things that bite and sting and all that kind of issue. And uh, they love bugs and they love um, everything. And it's wonderful if you can enthuse them and make them see that, uh, you know, they are the guardians of our future with wildlife. And I just love working with primary pupils. Not only that, they're incredibly bright, a lot of them, and they ask you questions that you think, my goodness, I have no idea what the answer to that is. They always make me laugh. I did um, an event at Dundee High School um, not that long ago, and it was just such a joy. And I got some incredible um, questions from those children they were between eight and eleven and I was absolutely blown away by their knowledge by their interest I think children are not the problem I think it's uh, our generation and below Richard that are the issue I'm afraid so You're afraid yeah. so your, yeah. your face lit up when you started talking about the kids though. oh I love it I just absolutely adore it and I mean if you can take a child to a day in a rock pool for example and guddle all day I mean what bliss what heaven that is um, and you get absolutely soaked and your hands get cold and your wellies fill with water and it's just joyous because you realize that you've connected on a different level and I suppose I was so fortunate to have a childhood filled with that kind of thing. And I was very lucky that my son had the same childhood. And I just remember one day he said to me, um, years and years after he was an adult, he said, Mum, um, you know, I'm really grateful to you. And I thought, oh, gosh, what's coming? And he said, you taught me to guddle. And <laughs> I think it uh, sums it up. There's another wonderful little story. I had a wee boy here recently. I was looking after him. Uh, his mother was away and um, I'd planned a picnic lunch. And of course, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, it's always raining or that when you want to do something. So when it came to lunchtime, it was very showery. And I said, um, do you want to have picnic outside or shall we eat in the kitchen? And he said, no, 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 we must go outside. I said, all right. He said, yes. Mummy says it's really good for you to be outside because it releases dolphins into your brain. <laughs> I think that's just such a lovely thought. You know? um, and on that note, we'll wrap things up. Thanks so much for talking to me. Well, thank you very much for having me. I loved it. Dolphins. <laughs> Isn't it classic? It's great. Because you can just see them all doing this round and round the head and you just think how brilliant. <laughs> That was the fabulous Polly Puller. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can get me on X, Twitter, or whatever it's known as this week, where you'll find my handle is at Scott Nature Corps. You can also look me up on LinkedIn or Facebook and drop me a message.